our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us. Forgive us of our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And deliver us from evil. Leading us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you'll be seated. What I just prayed is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. It's really more of a disciple's prayer. It's going to be in the text that we're talking about uh, today. <clears throat> and it's one of the more well-known statements in all of Christianity. If you have a background at all in Christianity or around the church at all, you've probably heard that prayer. Some of you, even if you aren't believers yet, um, may even have that prayer memorized. And you probably have it memorized if you do, like I do, in the King James with thys and thous and arts and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's something that's very well known. Even when I was um, uh, on the cross-country and track team at Georgia Tech before uh, a meet, we would huddle up together right before a race and, and we, would, we would recite that together. And with people who are, you know, um, avidly and, and openly, I am not a believer, but they still had it memorized. They still knew it is something that's very common and you find it in scripture in two places in Luke chapter 11 it's where we're going to be today page 564 if you don't have a bible go ahead and grab it and when that's around you and you can open up to Luke chapter 11 and it's also in the book of Matthew but there are a couple of differences between Matthew and Luke as it relates to the Lord's prayer in Matthew it's a little bit longer than it is in Luke and that's just because um, just as, you know, I'm going to watch the Super Bowl tonight and uh, Tyler's going to watch the Super Bowl tonight as we watch the Super Bowl and as we cheer for the Falcons rise up. OK, uh, and it's all right. Sorry, sorry. But uh, uh, <clears throat> I got to go hometown. But um, as we're watching that, Tyler and I will both watch that game. And then if I gave a report of what the game's all about. And he gave a report, and we're going to get the basic things together, but maybe a few small details that are different. And that's kind of the difference between Luke and Matthew. But one major difference between the Lord's Prayer and both those in Luke and Matthew is that last line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's not in either one. So where does that come from? Um, the Lord's Prayer is just something that the church has done. And in the early church, as they prayed that and began using that for corporate worship, they incorporated a line out of the book of Chronicles to kind of go with that prayer as part of their corporate worship and it's just kind of become attached to it uh, as a recitation. So that's kind of where that line comes from. So as we're going through Luke 11 today and you see some differences between maybe what you have memorized and the way it's recorded here, that's kind of some of the background of that. <clears throat> but the Lord's Prayer, it's a great thing. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to pray, something to you know um, recite and, and commit to memory. I would commend that to you. 
But if all we're doing with it is reciting it, it's become a bit reductionist in our hearts as far as the intentions of Jesus went when he gave that to us. Because when Jesus gave that to us, his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives them basically a divine outline, not something that's just to be, you know, uh, committed to rote memory, though that's good. But it's it, it's something that's that's a divine outline, not so much a repeat after me, but just an outline of how to pray. And we'll we'll get into all of that. But but beyond that, in Luke chapter 11, verses one through 13, the whole thing's about prayer. And it teaches like a few keys on why we should pray and definitely gets into kind of this divine outline and how we should pray. But I think one of the biggest things, one of the biggest takeaways out of this is kind of the mindset that we need to have in prayer. And so we'll break it down into those four kind of groupings that are in your sermon guide. If you have one of those uh, as we make our way through Luke 11, 1 through 13. But I want to just read it in its full um, at the at the beginning and then we'll make our way through it. So let's stand, if you would, this morning. Since you're sitting right now, when we read the Bible, we like for everyone to be standing just in honor of God's word when we read it formally. <clears throat> Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his, his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And you can be seated. What I want you to notice kind of out of the gate here are those first four words. Just, just easy to slip past these and just it's just part of the reading. But what I want you to notice is now Jesus was praying. All right, notice that Jesus was praying. So Jesus doesn't just teach about prayer, but he prays. A lot. Okay? A lot. In fact, Luke highlights his prayer life more than any of the other three gospel writers. The nine prayers in the gospel, Luke, seven of which are only recorded in this gospel. And when we are learning from Jesus about prayer, we're learning on two different fronts. One of those is that Jesus prayed just like we do, fully human. 
prayed. So he knows what that's like. We're learning from him on that front. On another front, Jesus receives prayer and mediates prayer because he's fully God, fully human, fully God. This is the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so that's, you know, um, how we learn from Jesus on two different fronts. One of the things I want you to take away from this, though, now Jesus was praying. Is if Jesus, the long awaited promised king, sinless savior, son of God, second person of the Trinity. Felt that it was a necessity to get away to quiet places by himself on his own all the time to pray. If he felt the need to pray, how much more do we need to pray? And so, number one, if you're taking notes, prayer is a necessity. It's a necessity. And that's nothing new. In fact, nothing I say today is going to be new, I don't, I don't think. But this especially, no one's hearing this, you know, this call, whether you're a Christian or not, never been around. I don't think anybody's seeing this. And this is like some, you know, crazy concept. Prayer's a necessity? I never knew that. Who knew? This is, I never, no one ever told me that. No, no, I don't think anybody in here is doing that. But again, just the point, like, if Jesus needed to pray, are you stronger than Jesus? Are you more filled with the Holy Spirit than Jesus? Are you more godly than Jesus? And so if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? So number one, prayer is a necessity just out of the fact that we see Jesus, the Son of God, praying. Right? Number two, prayer is learned. Prayer is learned. Look at verse one again. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And so again, prayer is learned, right? The, the disciples, they didn't, you know, uh, get converted and suddenly know how to pray. They asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't know how. And so it's not something you just automatically know how and you become a Christian. It's just like, boom, I've got this amazing prayer life. They're going to write it down. And, you know, um, the, the Puritan book that we sometimes pray, pray through in here, Valley of Vision. And so they ask Jesus to help, which kind of like a prayer, isn't it? So he asked Jesus to help. And he kind of gives them a divine outline. All right. And then later he's going to kind of talk about their approach to God. But first, let's just kind of talk about this divine outline. It's not a rigid recitation like a divine outline. And if you look at it, you'll notice there's two big parts. The first part it's kind of, it's God-centered. It's God-exalting. And then the second part rolls into personal needs and, and, and what, you know, what we need as individuals. And so you've got a vertical dimension. You've got a horizontal dimension in this prayer. And so on the vertical dimension, like the very first thing, Father, hallowed be Your name. And so prayer always and forever begins with God. Hallowed be your name. Like our number one burden in prayer. 
Number one is that, Father, above all things that you do, make sure that your name is reverenced and glorified and magnified and exceedingly loved and treasured. Do much to the praise of your glorious grace and your name and your reputation and your character and your honor. Make sure in my heart and in the hearts of those I love and in the hearts of this church and in the hearts of this town, and in the hearts of this region, in this country and this globe, reverence your name, glorify yourself in my heart. Above all things, hallow your name in hearts. I want you to notice, again, this is a divine outline. So this is just kind of like as you pray. This is, this is the common prayer. So the first thing that we should always be praying for is God's glory to be made known. Number one. And then it says your kingdom come. This is the longing of our heart. That this world, as we know it, will end and the kingdom of God will be unveiled at the second coming of Jesus. A kingdom where, as one guy put it, there will be justice and love and mercy. The hungry will be fed. The poor will be provided for. The marginalized will be esteemed. Those who have wept will have every tear wiped from their eyes and every unrepentant bully and thug and dictator and abuser will be cast out of that kingdom forever. And we will all together as the children of God from around the globe and all time. Enjoy our father king in his glorious, perfect, eternal kingdom forever. That's what we long for. That's the hope New heavens, new earth coming down. All that's gone wrong, made right. We hope for that. We look forward to that. But until that day, we're to live lives as the church seeking to, as one of the reformers, John Calvin said, make the invisible kingdom visible. That's what we're seeking to do, knowing it will never come in its fullness until Jesus returns. But we seek to do that by fighting injustice. Feeding the poor, caring for the marginalized, loving those who hate us and forgiving those who do evil against us. So that's kind of the vertical divine outline. Father, how would be your name? Your kingdom come. And then Jesus rolls into the horizontal of personal needs. And there's three of them. One, give us each our daily bread. And this is the Lord. We're reliant on you. Where every good gift comes down from you, the Father of lights, continue your faithfulness towards us and give us what we truly need. All right, skipping down to the last one because I want to spend some time on the second one. And lead us not into temptation. Help us to fight sin. Help us to fight our fleshly nature, our fleshly desires. But then a big one I want to spend some time on is this second one, verse four. And forgive us. Our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Like that's the attitude of our heart. Our attitude is a forgiving heart. Who? Everyone who sinned against us, who's indebted to us. Everyone. For we ourselves forgive everyone. That's the attitude of our heart. We forgive who? Everyone. Why? Romans 5, 8. For while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, for while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. And so we're to forgive constantly. Again, this is a divine outline for normal prayer. And we are constantly to be thinking about those towards whom we might have bitterness. Those towards whom we need to forgive. Those whom may have done harm to us. It's not on them to come and get forgiveness. It's on us to give forgiveness. Like Christ did. So that's one. And then also constantly to be asking for God to forgive us. I mean, I want you to see this. When Jesus, like Jesus is specifically telling us here, when, verse 2, when you pray, say, and then verse 4, forgive us our sins. And so the connotation here is that we have to pray like every time we come to God, we recognize His holiness is such and our depravity is such that we always need to ask for forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is telling us this. And that's why we need brothers and sisters because like, I don't see my sin most of the time. Sometimes the Lord will convict me. I pray that that grows as I'm, the longer I walk with Christ and He convicts me and I repent and change. But a lot of times I don't see it. So I have this wonderful sin pointer outer called my wife. And I'm a sin pointer outer for her as well. And I've got Chad and I've got John and I've got Debbie and we speak truth and love towards one another. That's why we need the church. You need people around you who will love you enough to speak into your life lovingly. Because we don't see our sin most of the time. And we need forgiveness. Like every single time we pray, we need forgiveness. It's, we're always tainted. I mean, we're, we're, we're saved. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation, but... It's not that your conversion obliterated your natural proclivity to sin. You still have that fleshly nature. And we also have to understand that our un, that, that unconfessed sin can affect, can hinder our prayers. Unconfessed sin can hinder our prayers. You see this throughout Scripture, and I'll just give you one example. I'll use husbands for a minute as an example. Did you know that the way you treat your wife can hinder your prayers? First Peter chapter three, verse seven says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so unconfessed sin, that's a big deal. It will hinder your prayers. But I don't, do not, I don't want to and I don't want you to, uh, do not push that idea to a place that Scripture doesn't. Because the truth of the matter is that what we see all throughout Scripture is that God answers the prayer of repentant sinners, not perfect people. Okay, he answers the prayers of repentant sinners, not perfect people. So you don't have to be a perfect person.
person or even pretend and fake and be some self-righteous, you know, uh, outwardly the tomb looks clean, inwardly full of dead bones. You don't have to be a perfect person to have God hear and answer your prayer. You just have to be desperate and repentant. I mean, just think about the Old Testament for a minute. That thing reads like a litany of God hearing the cries of sinful people whose very sins got them into the circumstances that they're crying out for God to deliver them from. And what does He do? He hears and answers. You don't have to be perfect. Have God answer your prayers. He answers the prayers of repentant sinners. And so prayer is a necessity. Prayers learn this. And this is good news that, that He answers the prayers of repentant sinners and not perfect people or no one is getting their prayers answered. So prayers and necessity, prayers learned. And so you've got this divine outline, kind of vertical dimensions, horizontal dimensions. And then this idea of part of the approach to God is understanding that He answers prayers for repentant sinners and not perfect people. But over and above that, the way we are to approach God is with an understanding that He is our Father. Our loving Father. It's a term of endearment. Abba, Papa, Daddy. And prayer is really an invitation to be with him. I mean, my third daughter got a, uh, a birthday party invitation. Kira got a birthday party invitation a couple of days ago, and it was addressed to her in the mail. And she went bonkers over the fact that she had something in the mail with her name on it. And this good, good friend of hers was inviting her to come and spend time with her. And she got this personal invitation. That's God with you. Prayer is a personal invitation to fellowship and intimacy with your father as his child. And so if number one's prayer is a necessity, number two, prayers are number three, recognize prayer is an invitation. It's an invitation. So look at verse five with me. And he said to them, which of you as a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And you will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. When you live in a one room home, you've got one area where you sleep and everybody's piled up on the floor. And so when someone gets up, it disturbs everybody else. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And impudence just means like, shameless perseverance. Shameless request. And I tell you, ask, this is verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so the whole point, like prayers and everything, the whole point of this section is that God is our Father who loves us and invites us into uh, intimacy with Him as his child. 
Right? The whole point is that he's not an annoyed neighbor when we come to him in prayer, but that he's a loving father. And so Jesus is making a contrast here to show us that God is ready and willing to help us. That if even the surliest of neighbors can be persuaded to help us in the middle of the night, then how much more will our Father in heaven hear us when we pray? Because He neither sleeps nor slumbers. And He loves to help His people in need. And so understand, prayer is not a way of getting God to do what we want. Or of persuading him to do something he does not want to do. But prayer is an audaciously bold request for God to do what he promised to do. Like when you look at this, you know, grouchy friend, that section of this story here is not uh, to teach us how God responds. It's, that's to show us how he doesn't respond. But what we should learn from that is how this man is impudent. He's shameless with his requests. He doesn't mind blabbling on, babbling on about these. So we should learn to pray like that, but not think God responds like that. He's trying to make a contrast. No, no, no. God's not like that. He's like a father. He hears you. How much more will he hear you? And so we ask and we seek and we knock. And the idea there in verse nine, the, the form of the Greek verb is a continuing action. It's keeping on asking. All right. Keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be open to you. Like the man in this picture, he would not stop knocking. Now we need to be careful here because if you take this too far, you can push this to a point and fall into error. Because this is not teaching that like if you pray enough, then you can force God to answer your prayers. Like, do it enough and God will give you exactly what you ask for. He's a pinata. You're a stick. Just inevitable. Hit the pinata enough and then all the goodies will fall out. That's not prayer. That's not doctrine. That's heresy. That's what you see on TV. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's the kind of stuff that would have gotten you burned alive 200 years ago. It's heresy. Not what Jesus is teaching here. He's also not teaching that prayer is some sort of works-based thing where God only responds to enough prayer before He'll, you know, you've got to do it enough before He'll hear and answer. No, God answers the prayers of who? Repentant sinners. Not perfect people. But we are to persevere in prayer. We are to ask and seek and knock, continuing to ask, continuing to seek, continuing to knock. Because as John Piper puts it, it's an utterly amazing thing that God is ordained to include us in running the universe. Now listen closely so you don't get think some bonky thing here. He really does respond to our prayers. They're woven into the fabric of causes that God wills to be moved by. We do not pray in vain. He's our Father. And when He hears His children, He responds. He's not deaf or indifferent or powerless. He hears and He acts. And so I've been a dad for nearly 12 years now. 
All right, which is just crazy to me. I've got a daughter who's now in the youth group. That's just freaky. Love you, Chad, but it's freaky. But if you've ever been a parent or, or you know, you know your kids, they, they, they sometimes, I don't know, maybe it's different for you, but they sometimes ask me for things. Like all the time ask me for things. And would you be a good parent to always say yes? <laughs> let me, let me. <laughs> let me. That was a rhetorical question. No, but seriously, I'm gonna, I want to help you out here, buddy. I want to help you out. You see some crazy car on the road, dark windows, it's got curtains covering the back windows, rolls the window down, asks you to come get candy from the car. Mom and dad say, no, listen to them. It's a bad deal, right? Sometimes mom and dads need to say no to, oh, you want to stay up late? You want to have bonbons and Red Bull all night long? Great. Here's some Roman candles. Have fun with that. Right? Mom and dads need to say no sometimes for our safety, for our, for our good. They really do. So good parents have to say no sometimes. But they really have three, three answers. Yes. Say yes as much as you can. No. And later. Not yet. It's not time. Right? I mean, someday there's going to be a guy come wanting to date my daughter. And I'm not in, in maybe she likes him. And, 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 you know, she's like, Daddy, you just got out of rehab. He's on a good path. No. <laughs> no. I need to, you need to say no. And all of those, yes and no and later, those are all good answers in the right context. All right, in the appropriate context. And that's the only kind of answer God ever gives us are good answers. That's all he gives. That's the whole point of this crazy like horror story that he describes in, in verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. It's pretty, it's just crazy if you're looking at it. What father among among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? All right, so you've got this idea, you know, uh, Dad, can I have an egg for dinner? No, 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 but I put scorpions all over your bed. Right, that's, that's weird, that's not happening, no one's going to do that. Hey, Dad, can we have some fish tonight? No, but I threw a rattlesnake in the toilet. Like, did you guys see that on Facebook? This rattlesnake coming up out of the toilet? And the dad didn't put him there, but there, there was like 12 more down underneath the house. Moral of the story in Texas, if you go to the bathroom at night, turn the light on. So this is a crazy, this verse 11 is really weird. It's crazy language. It's very hyperbolic, over the top. But the point is, like even a not so great dad 
gets that if his kid asks for a good thing, fish or eggs, he's not going to give him a bad thing, scorpions and snakes. Even a not so great dad knows that. But then you've got a perfect dad. How much more will he give you gracious things? And some of you really need to get this. You're scared to pray to God and ask God for good things because you're scared of what he'll give you. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, don't you dare ever pray for patience. Because God will put the most gut-wrenching, life-sucking, awful situation in your life to give you patience. Now, I want my kids to have patience. But I'm not going to turn their life into a perpetual train wreck just to get them to have it. Don't be scared to pray. You can't, you're not going to ask God for a good thing and He's going to give you a bad thing. It doesn't mean there's always going to be peaches and cream and everything's going to be, you know, happy, go lucky. No, he's going to say no sometimes, and that's going to disappoint you. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to be hard. But it's good. It's what a good dad does. He gives good gifts. Yes, no, later, whatever that he's giving a good gift. And I'm in, I mean, it says right here, he's particularly calling out his disciples. If you then, if you then who are evil, all right, disciples love you, you're evil, but you know how to give good gifts to your kids. Like for me, I love to give gifts to my kids. I love to do that. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want them to act spoiled. I don't mind giving them a good gift though. I want to not act spoiled, right? There's a difference in, in those two things. But I want to give them good gifts. That makes me happy. I love to see their joy. I love to, 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 to see them run around and excited about this toy or whatever it is I, I gave them. God's a father towards you. Abba. And He loves to give you good gifts. And we'll get to the greatest gift in a minute. But He loves to give that. Good gifts. That's what he gives. All right, then what about what about this then? With each of my four kids, the moment we knew that Sarah was pregnant, we began praying a multitude of things for them. But one of them that we prayed. And I mean, we had four kids, so it almost, you know, we we came up with kind of a name for it. We called it the three D's. And I would pray this almost every single night. Father, please help this child to not have any diseases or disabilities or deformities. Just completely healthy. No complications. So I prayed that for all four of my kids. Why didn't he answer that? He did it for three, but not for the fourth. So where were you, God? What? Were you doing? What was that all about? That's what a perfect father always does for his children. It was what was good for us. Because we've got to keep something unbelievably simple but profound in mind. And it's this. God is father. And we are children. He knows what's best. We're limited. 
we might have 80 years. 90, 100 years. We can't see past that. God knows the, 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 the ends from the beginnings. And so in these questions, what, what was God doing? He was doing what was right. He's the father. We're the children. One commentator said it like this. He said, the father always keeps the right to do what is best for the children, even if they don't understand why it is best. If this were not so, we would be saying that we should run the father's house. We should be the father and he should be the child, which in this case would mean we should rule the universe and God should learn from us how to do it. Prayer is never meant that God should stop being God. We do not have the wisdom or the grace to run the universe. God is God and he will continue to decide how to run the universe in the best way. If we ask him for a fish, he will not give us a snake, but he may give us Pepto-Bismol or ibuprofen or grapefruit. He will give us what is good for us, even when we don't see it, and even when we're not sure. And all right, he, he's not absent. He didn't suddenly stop being sovereign. He didn't suddenly stop being good. It's just that we're limited. We cannot see the ends from the beginnings or how this one thing, even tragedy, will reverberate down the eons that we're too limited and can't see to the glory of God and the good of people. Taking even bad tragedies. I mean, go Joseph, book of Genesis. How that flips over hundreds of years. Or take Jesus. That tragedy resulting in billions of people being redeemed. That's how God works. He knows better than we do. He's a good father. And so if this crazy, grouchy neighbor, all right, will do good, or in a not so great dad will give good gifts, how much more will a good, loving, perfect father do good towards his children? even when we don't understand. He's your father. He's your Abba. These are terms of endearment. So one of the best ways I think you can learn how to pray, one of the best ways, is find a child who has a really, really, really good dad that he, and this dad absolutely adores that child. And watch how that child approaches his dad. And act like that. That child's going to come shamelessly. He's going to ask for things that are absurd. And his father's going to hear him and he's going to answer him yes or no or later. With love and grace and just an overwhelming. I mean, that's God towards you. This overwhelmingly loves you. Overwhelmingly. And that's why prayer is an invitation. It's an invitation to fellowship with our Father, who is also the God of the universe. But He's not a distant deity. He's an intimate Father. And so, go to Him. Like, He's inviting you in. Come free and unfettered like a child. 
prayer is an invitation to communication with God. It's not just an activity. It's a relationship. He's a person after all. I love the way Paul Miller describes what a praying life looks like in his book, which as a staff, we're all reading again. A praying life feels like our fam like our family mealtimes because prayer is all about relationship. All right? It's like supper around the table with your family. It's intimate and it hints at eternity. We don't think about communication or words, but about whom we're talking with. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. So sometimes we struggle to pray because we're focused on prayer. No, no, no. At the table, when I'm talking with my kids and I'm talking with my wife, I'm not trying to figure out how I want to word this. I'm just talk. That's prayer. Just talk to God. Don't Prayer is a windshield. Don't look at the windshield when you're driving. That'll go bad. Look through the windshield where you're going. Look to God. Focus on the Father, not on the prayer. Focus on the Father. And so it's an invitation. But we have to fight the cynic in our own hearts that would lead us into error and out of prayer because when we don't pray, what we're saying is that we don't believe God. When we don't pray, we're saying we don't believe God. I don't believe what He says in His Word. I don't believe that He hears and answers I don't take him at his word, and so we resort to a functional deism where we don't think God is really that involved in his creation, and so prayer makes no sense. Or we fall into open theism where we don't think God's really that powerful, so, you know, he can't really do anything, so I won't pray. Prayer makes no sense. Or we rationalize as some sort of hyper Calvinism or fatalism where we doubt God's goodness and just believe God's going to do what God's going to do and doesn't really matter, and thus prayer makes no sense. The problem with all of those is the Bible. God calls us to prayer. God invites us to prayer. And good things that otherwise would not happen happen because we pray. How does that work? I have no idea. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5, right? And so God's a good God. And He's for us. He wouldn't have sent Jesus if He wasn't. He loves us. He's a good Father. He's a good Daddy. And He only gives good gifts. And the best gift He gives is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which is what makes prayer possible. So real quick, look at verse 13 again. And this is number four in your notes. Prayer is made possible by the Holy Spirit. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give? And you think him, you think he's going to say good gifts to those whom he loves like it does in Matthew. But here it says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, i.e. the best gift that he gives is the Holy Spirit. And it's only through like prayers made possible by the Holy Spirit. So if you connect the first verse to this last verse, now Jesus was praying and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And then how does he answer this? How does he, you know, the the request of that verse, verse one here is answered. How do we pray? We're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that mediates prayers. It's only through him that we're able to pray. And then here's some amazing good news. In those moments when the pain is too deep and the burden is too heavy 
and you don't even know where to begin praying or what to pray. And you are just out of your mind like those moments when, you know, all this news came down and God didn't answer our prayers for our fourth child. And what's going on? And my groans are too great and my burdens are too heavy. And I don't even know what to pray. Romans 8, 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? What things? What he just said. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So you got the Holy Spirit praying for you. You've got Jesus praying for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Prayer is a necessity. It's learned. It's an invitation. And the Holy Spirit makes it possible. Let's pray. Father, the fact that we can use that word is astounding. We can call you Father. And you are our Heavenly Father. And in this invitation word it, it, that, that you give us in prayer. And in this question, like this Lord, teach us to pray that question the disciples ask. So that's my prayer request right right now, that you would teach us to pray, not just the how, but the when. Would teach us to pray. At all times, teach us to pray before we retaliate. Teach us to pray before we respond to something. Teach us to pray before we put something on Facebook. Teach us to pray before we apply for a job. Teach us to pray before we look for a spouse. Teach us to pray before. Teach us to pray. God, teach us to pray that we would. Pray. 
to you. Our good Father. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.